0: for young adults where we take questions that have been sent in and we discuss life and faith in the real world and what the bible and god has to say and so it's a conversation between some mates and some young adults and so we hope that you enjoy the conversation we are also a youtube channel so check us out on youtube and we're so glad that you're here so i hope you enjoyed today's conversation Hey everybody, and thanks for joining us again today, and on today's 411, we're going to be talking about the snake, the serpent in the garden. Was it a literal snake, or was it something else, talking to Adam and Eve? And as usual, I've got my good friend Steve, Jason Trist with us, Sizzle, will to you join us What's a bit ever. later. Hey guys, good to have you again, An interesting topic today. And I wonder how many out there are wondering, you know, uh, how does a snake talk? and What is going on in the garden? So good to have you on the 411. So let's get into it. So Steve, you did a video a couple of weeks ago on our Glad You Are series for our church. Bringing up this this question, snake being is the snake literal? Is it a literal snake? Is it a figure of speech? And you did quite a bit of teaching on it. And again, for me, it was something new, something I hadn't thought of. And about the rest of the guys, if you had thought about it, but maybe you can just do some groundwork for us, Steve, as to what it is or how you got there, or who who brought the question up, and then cover some ground for us, man.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, super interesting. Um, I mean, I know there's a TV show Lucifer, um, there's kind of all these ideas about what Satan looks like the sort of devil with the red horns and you know, torturing people. Um, and we come into passages like this, and uh, we're going to be importing either intentionally or unintentionally a whole lot of stuff that we're aware of or maybe unaware of. Um, and You know, we get to a passage like Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3, or specifically Genesis 3, where we've got this interaction between this serpent and Eve. And um, one of the things that I mentioned on this video is, you know, we've been told, rightly so, that um, this serpent is Satan. And so we start our Bibles... Genesis chapter one to get to Genesis chapter three and we meet the serpent and we go oh it's Satan Um, but a very interesting exercise for us to do is to kind of almost imagine I'm reading this for the first time and not read back everything that I want to read back at some point of course we're going to do that but let the story unfold as it unfolds um, and suddenly you're asking a whole a lot of different kinds of questions like for example Adam and Eve walking around and a snake starts talking to them I mean um, if we're going we already know that Satan and so we we know the story so we don't need to think too hard about it but if you're reading it as if you don't know where this is going you're like why <laughs> why is a snake talking and why are Christians okay with this you know, like, where else do we see this? Um, and and this is why some people start saying, well, it's got to be mythological. I mean, we've never seen a talking snake at the reptile park. So uh, we therefore know that talking snakes don't exist. And so um how can that be true? Or I think sometimes as Christians, we have maybe a simplistic reading of Genesis uh, chapter 3, Um, largely probably informed by being in Sunday school and growing up when you were younger and seeing pictures, you know, Adam and Eve, fig leaves sort of covering them at some stage and, uh, rosy red cheeks and this like happy snake. And, um, and, and, and we just leave it there. We don't ever go beyond that. Um, but when we read Genesis three, we see that it's described as a serpent, um, that is more crafty than all the other wild animals um and he starts talking and adam or adam and eve aren't i think if you and i had to come across a talking snake we would run adam and eve just very happily pick up the conversation and so the question is why and how and without getting too far into it um i am going to do what i said we shouldn't do and that is just to go forward see what else we learn um, and that's going to help us interpret what's going on here but um, in Isaiah chapter 6, there's a very famous scene. A lot of our songs are about Isaiah chapter 6. And um, we see Isaiah, he's in the temple. He sees the Lord. He has this vision of the Lord. It's high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And then they, we are introduced to these creatures called seraphim. Now, seraphim is a Hebrew word, which, if directly translated, means uh, burning ones. But that's a, a, like a, almost an uber-literal translation. Um, if you look at how that word is used in Hebrew and in the rest of the Bible, every single time the word seraphim refers to a, a serpent, a snake, in particular a venomous snake. If you think about if a venomous snake bites you, it's burning. And so some people have said a seraphim is a, a flaming angel, like an angel of fire, and while I kind of get that, if we are also going to go look at every other time that the, that, that phrase has been used, we see that they are called, um, that word um, seraphim is about a venomous snake, very literally a venomous snake. And so we can maybe start working on this theory. Well, maybe seraphim are these serpentine creatures. And um, what is actually discovered is, um, archaeologically, people have found from the time of Judah, um, little icons, little coins with um, winged serpentine beings on them. And so it, it actually starts to make a little bit more sense if we start to put this together that um, what you either have in Genesis chapter 3, you either have kind of like Satan possessed the real snake. Um, and the reason why I don't think that's what's going on here is just Eve's reaction. She's not freaked out. Um, The other option is that Satan was, and we know that Satan was kind of a more superior angelic kind of a being, and that he would have been a seraphim, Um, one of these serpentine type of creatures, and kind of a throne guardian type of creature. Um, And so it kind of made sense. We know from the book of uh, Genesis that there were other creatures there when Adam and Eve leave the garden. God puts other angels, cherubim to God, the the exits. Um, And so it shouldn't surprise us that Adam and Eve are familiar with other beings. Uh, God is there. Heaven and earth is kind of overlapped in a very unique way. And so they're not just engaging in a bloomslang. (laughs) They just started talking to them. They're engaging with a serpentine being known as the Satan, which later became identified as the Satan. Genesis 12 talks about the serpent, Um, and so putting it all together, it really starts to make sense that Adam and Eve knew that they were speaking to um, some form of angelic being that had the serpentine form, um, who seems to be either coming from or in a stage of rebellion, Um, and Mm that is why he becomes known as the Satan, which literally means the adversary, the one who opposes. The things of God, so that's kind speak- of like uh, where I wanted to start things off. Um, yeah, Daryl,
0: you spoke to uh, uh, you spoke about the actual interpretation of the word Satan, in and, yes. and the the Hebrew. What what was the translation there?
1: It's technically it's the adversary, um, and 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 really just like you and I can talk about someone opposes me or someone's my adversary. Um, um, the word is used in a very um what's the, what's the term non-personal way so um, the word satan if you looked up the word satan in a Hebrew Bible you would see that humans are often described as satan not because they're a satan or because they're possessed by satan but they're, they're an adversary in that moment now this might freak some people out hear me out there's at least one occasion where God is described as a satan not because he is Satan, hear me clearly, <laughs> not because he's Satan, but he is <laughs> acting as an adversary to somebody else at that period of time. I can't remember the exact, exact context, uh, but he is opposing something, and therefore the Hebrew word available to them is he's being an adversary. Um, God often opposes us, right? And so that's what they're saying. The difference with this being is that the Hebrew word ha, always comes before the word satan Hebrew is the definite article the so whenever if you look at Job chapter 1 Zechariah 13 and 14 whenever this particular being is mentioned he's called the adversary not just a adversary he's not just in the act of being an adversary he is the ultimate <laughs> rebel he's the ultimate adversary
2: maybe I can uh, yeah I just think of kind of our a... Growing up in Sunday school and then like even my parents who are not necessarily uh, involved in the church and like they could have told me the story about the snake and, and the garden. And I can, I can think quite clearly of, um, yeah, just times in Sunday school and I'm thinking oh, there's a literal snake talking to a woman and as a kid, I can't click that there's anything wrong with that. And then I think as you, you get older and you revisit um, Genesis, you see, like, this is peculiar. And then the snake seems to be walking and the snake's now talking and Eve's responding. And then, especially after just what you shared on on the depth of your video, that it's it's probably an angelic being. Uh, uh, so, Steve, my question, I think, like, just to predate the snake was... So we had the fall of man in, in Genesis 2, or Genesis 3. So do you think yeah. that... Um, Uh, the like the disobedience or the fall of the angels, where where they turn from God, happened before, um, uh, yeah, the fall of man because it seems like Satan's acting in deliberate disobedience to,
1: yes, yeah. Um, let me separate those two because they may have happened together, may they may have happened separately. Um, what we can conclude so only separates. The fall of this Hasatan, the Satan, and the fall of the rest of the angels, which we just generically call demons, whatever the case might be. Um, What we can say for certain is that either Satan had fallen before this, and not much is described there. We might chat about this later, but there are some very cryptic passages in the book of ezekiel and isaiah that, again very cryptically give us maybe some stuff to think about there um but it doesn't paint a very clear picture either it had happened before or this was his moment of rebellion um in other words eve's like "Ah, i know you (laughs) and and unbeknown to her this was his first act of rebelling against god um we don't actually know any more than what I've just said. Um, and with regard to the fall of the rest of the, of the the angels um, oh, without re- recapping the whole Genesis six idea of the sons of God, um, it seems very likely that that is that moment um, that they kind of followed suit, um, but quite possibly after the fall of man. Um But again, beyond that, we're actually just doing some educated guesswork here.
3: Steve, can I hop hop in here, Jay? Sorry, man. Yeah. Steve, a question I've kind of grappled with often, and I even had the question thrown at me with one of my um, learners, is the question of had even uh, Adam and Eve not sinned, would there be a perfect world? And my response was, I mean, for me... I I grapple with this idea of was sin really innate in human beings or was it actual, actually the, the serpent tempting them? In other words, if the serpent wasn't there to tempt them, uh, would we be born sinners? Would we have that in our DNA? Um, I don't know if it's something to think of, like, I don't know if if, if Adam and Eve didn't sin, would would Cain and Abel sin? Mm. It's just this idea of, Is sin part of the human condition or is it as a result of the serpent disobeying God? I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Look, I mean, if you're tempted by something, like whether it's the second donut or that second look at that magazine cover, whatever the case might be, it's always something external appeals to something internal. And so your question is, was there something internal to Adam and Eve that's this external reality appeal to. Um, we don't really know. Here's, here's the way I've tended to think about it, and I don't know if this is a perfect answer, but if you imagine like a needle um, with kind of a negative side, a neutral side, and a positive side, um, it seems like Adam and Eve we're born with almost a neutral morality in the sense that they weren't inherently evil. They weren't inherently good. They had free will to choose to do whatever they wanted. But at the point of the temptation, them giving in th- to the temptation of the enemy, they you called it a DNA. Obviously that's not a scientific term, but their inherent nature became one of uh, sinners and every human being subsequently is born not with a neutral needle, but a, Negative needle. Um, and so our inherent free will is not that free because there's actually a bias within me that um, doesn't have the freedom to fully and freely choose as freely as, say, Adam and Eve did. Um, and then we get Jesus, whose bias was towards the positive. And what that means is it's not like Jesus was a robot um, and that he couldn't sin. The Bible says very clearly he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Uh, We know that he grew hungry. We know that he grew tired and thirsty. And so he experienced many of the tests and temptations that we did. But his will was orientated towards obeying God fully. Um, And so I think there's this very unique moment in history where Adam and Eve, pre-sin, had this almost neutral zone, not a Christ-like, Christ is better, but a neutral zone will that's very quickly went to the dark side uh, subsequently we inherit that nature um which is why we need christ who was fully able to conform to the will of god and therefore our salvation is in him
2: so that's 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 fascinating so would you like
1: because i think of that neutral perspective as like an
2: innocence like there was just a an inherent innocence so like yes. i i love that uh yeah i've never heard of that analogy but i think that's actually like we we're, we're born with, a, with an innocence that was then poised to be biased towards seeking after our own desires or being evil. I think that's that's spot yeah. on.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, if you really had to push that hard, you might it might not satisfy every kind of biblical concept. Yes, but yes, I I just yes. think in a general general sense, uh that's what I think Trist was going on here. But um I mean you you, you asked the question, but what if they didn't sin? Um, I think it's very likely that somebody else would have sinned. However, um, we're talking about this balance between free will and God's sovereignty. Um, We know that Christ is crucified before the foundation of the world. Um, In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't just like face palm moments and like, now what? Okay, plan B. Um, He knew exactly how things were going to play out, um, including the fall of Satan, the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, and even his plan of salvation and redemption. Um, So, yeah, just in response to your question, would we have lived in like some sort of perfect paradise if they hadn't sinned? Um, And I don't think so. I think God knew exactly that that neutral position wouldn't hang around too long and eventually would make a choice and go one way.
2: Steve, I don't know (laughs) just what you're touching on. uh, It could be something you're going to bring up in, in future videos. And if that's the case, like then we'll touch on it when it when it does. Then, so we, we're considering that God's all wise and all knowing. So in His wisdom, He allowed the fall and that sort of thing to happen. How would you like, like, how do you explain that to people and they're asking, like, then why did He just not remove the snake or why didn't He just, yeah, uh, you know, like that element that kept the needle always in innocence? But if there is a video, we can even touch that in later. But...
1: Look, I I think. I think briefly, um, I mean, Trist, you, you said earlier, you know, would we have a perfect world if there was no evil? And um, as Christians, we obviously believe it. And I just want to keep this in our imaginations that um, Revelation 21 promises yes. that for those of us in Christ, we are going to eventually inherit this perfect world. Um, but if we think about the role that evil plays, um, and I was just talking about it today a bit, and it is going to come up more. So I, would, I don't want to say too much more about it. but um, So like if I, if, if I stick my hand in the fire, and if I don't have the ability to feel pain, I'm going to damage myself even more. And so th- the pain that I'm experiencing is letting me know that there's something wrong, uh, and that's going to save my life every single time stomach pain, heart pain, head pain, go to the doctor, find out what's going on. And so the pain in this world helps me understand that something's going wrong. In addition, C.S. Lewis, we were talking about him earlier. He talks about the fact that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains. Point being, when life is a hundred percent and we're living our best life now, uh, we forget about God and we tend to go into like, I'm in control of my universe but it's when things go wrong that I start to turn back to God and, and look to him um, in my time of need. Um, and then finally, it's just if I don't have any genuine choice, so those who are going to spend eternity with God, and I do understand there's a debate around election and free will and that kind of thing. But if we don't have any genuine choice, then was I ever, did I ever truly free uh, choose God? Um, and so that setup, put that together, I think you've got, I know it doesn't answer every single curiosity, but I think you've got some powerful thoughts to go, I don't like it, but it does make sense. Um and and at the end of the day, but this is the world we've got. And then are we able to explain the world we've got? And so whether you look in an atheistic worldview or some of the Eastern religions, um, are they describing this reality of pain and evil and suffering? Um, and I think they fall short. And so um, we can ask about how did we get here and why, and I think there's a couple of thoughts there, but we also need to be able to answer, but how do we explain the world we do have, Um, and I think the Christian worldview gives quite a robust explanation for that. I don't know, Trist, how did that sit with you after hearing that?
3: No, that makes total sense, Steve, 100%, and... um... Absolutely, bang on. Um, It's just, yeah, I think in the curiosity sort of um, voice or sort of mind in me would want to, you know, get some more intricate details. But I think, (laughs) I think that what you what you what you said, I think is, um, I think all we really need to know. I don't know if God wants us to know all the ins and outs and the hows and the whys. And, And a verse we've we've spoken about is is That his ways are higher, and by his sovereignty, he's orchestrated somehow uh, an adversary to be a part of his plan, and you know, in, in my view, that's next level op, as Jays would say. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I, I think you, I think you hit it bang on. So yeah, thank yeah. you, Steve.
1: And I, I think it's important for us all to know that um, it's not like the time's going to come when. It's like the devil versus God and like who's going to win? Um, because uh, yes, it's at some point you look out in the world and you think it does look like evil has got the other hand. Part of that is just good news doesn't make good headlines and so we don't always uh, know how to celebrate that. Part of it is 99 compliments can come my way and one one criticism can come my way and just the way we're wired, I'm going to focus on that single um mm-hmm negative as opposed to the 99 positives and so there's all sorts of reasons why I don't think we always see the beauty that, that is out there but having said all of that um the cross is kind of proof and in fact Genesis 3 is prophesied that um there's going to come this messianic figure that is going to crush the head of the serpents um and the cross is kind of the evidence that the head of the serpent is crushed and it's kind of like the death blow and Now the serpent is just kind of like thrashing around and hes he knows his days are numbered and he's going to try and take down as many with him as he can. But we know for certain, like, you know, if you shoot an animal, (laughs) I'm not getting into the hunting debate, but people will know (laughs) that bullet's going to take it out. You can let that kudu run away, but eventually it's going to die. And that was what the cross was to, to Satan. And so we don't have to guess. Um, who is going to win this at the end of the day?
3: So, so Steve, the... Sorry, Des, I don't know if I'm interrupting you. Welcome no, no, okay, go. I'll, go,
0: I'll go next. No, well, I, was Akeem, just... I want to go first, actually, because I think you might... Take some of this. Hello, she's Welcome. Thanks for coming. It's just... Um, we're in the thick of a chair with the serpent and the snake and and all sorts. But, Steve, you mentioned something in terms of the ter- interpretation of... of the adversary, also possibly meaning uh, the deceiver, the snake, the shining one. And you also linked bronze in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but my thinking goes then to Moses in the desert and yeah. the snakes and, and, and people dying from snake bites. And and it seems the instructions to Moses, make a bronze snake and put it on a snake and... and as a symbol, again, for us to look to if we want to be saved, and there you've just mentioned it being, you know, a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. But for me, why, why, why the snake then? Why, the, why the bronze snake? You know, if if any symbol is—is is this not pointing to a worship of the bronze snake? You know, for for saving, as opposed to some other symbol. That's not related to the deceiver or the Satan or the adversary.
1: Look, what we do know, and again, like one of the frustrating things about biblical theology is that sometimes there are details that are there, we just haven't seen them. But sometimes there just aren't more details, and we just don't know what what to do with it. And and this might just be one of those cases. Um So what's interesting, so the word for the serpents that came into the camp to bite the Israelites isn't the same word as serpents in Genesis 3. Just like we've got snake and serpent, two words meaning roughly the same thing. So Hebrew's got Nachash, which is Genesis 3, and um, which is more of a general term, and then Seraphim, which is the um, more specific venomous snake term. And so when those serpents or snakes came into the camp, um, it's the term seraphim. It's not the same term, nachash, which is Genesis chapter three. The, when that snake was raised, the bronze snake was raised on a pole. It was also called uh, nachash. Sorry, a, a, a seraph singular. So it's not yeah. plural in Hebrew. The ending M is plural. So it's a single seraph. So a burning one, a snake put on the pole. Um, and just to maybe like work with, Jesus actually makes this illusion and this is where again, biblical theology at first points at first, it's not always obvious, but Jesus says just like the, that snake in the desert was lifted up. So must the son of man be lifted up. And so there's this connection, this typology connection that like, wow, this thing equals this thing. And it's not always obvious at the first level. And, I think the level of interpretation we're actually needing to go in is not, oh, the serpent is possibly going to be misconstrued as the Genesis 3 serpents and therefore the devil and now it's going to confuse everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what the New Testament writers at least are wanting us to make the connection is here's this serpent that was raised up. Here was God's For want of a term curse, he actually brought upon this plague. There was a curse brought against these people as a result of their sin. Then this object was raised up and it became the object that if they looked to it, they didn't have to do anything, perform anything. They just looked to it and they trusted God. In that moment, they would be healed. And so now those are the connections, the data points that they wanted to connect it to Jesus. Mm -hmm. That we are under the curse of sin. And this thing was raised up. And all I need to do is look to it in order to be saved um, and trust that God would save me in that saving moment. Um, And beyond that, yeah, I I, I don't know if there is something more to it. I I haven't discovered it yet. Uh, I'm sure there's some people way cleverer than me that are deep mining Um, what's going on there with the bronze serpent. Um there are there are a couple of interesting metaphors with the not metaphors but there are things going on where I do think there are supposed to be connotations towards the Genesis three serpents with some of the other bronze imagery. Just a, a very uh, uh interesting one very quickly, but uh, Genesis three, um in Hebrew it's got the the vowels Well, we've got the word nachash but uh, the old scripture didn't have the vowels. And so you have to go to look at context to understand which vowels to put in. And depending on which vowels you put in, you either get serpent, nachash, or you get uh, the word for, uh, if, if you use it in its adjectival form, kind of a shiny bronze thing. And so uh, it seems as if the biblical author wants us to put them together. It's not either or, but it's a deceiver, which is the third of the triple entendre. It's a deceiver. It's a snake or a serpentine being, and it's a shiny one, bronze uh, uh, kind of metallic thing, and um, just total crazy thing. If you read the book of David and Goliath, um, I obviously didn't discover this for myself, but uh, Goliath is constantly being described in his bronze attire, and I think there was a literal bronze like, I don't think it's just metaphor. He was actually wearing bronze. But it also describes how uh, there were scales on his bronze armor. And so just this, like, layer of, like, has God's anointed one defeating the serpents. I mean, it's just... It's That's
2: incredible. unreal. That's yeah. unreal. Yo. So, so, Steve, I just want to, yeah, just because I found that quite fascinating. So Just with the ancient Hebrew, they didn't have the vowels in their letters. So Correct. depending on how depending on how we read it, that's how we'd apply it. Is Direct. that what you you're saying? So are you yeah. saying? Is, so when you when when you look at Genesis three, what how are we looking at it? We're we looking at it both uh, the the snake and the deceiver, or is it?
1: So so maybe just to go back to the first part of your yeah, question, sure. um, Hebrew was a spoken language and a written language, and so for thousands of years people would have just known like this was the form that we used. Uh, We also have the advantage of the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And there we've got a clearer idea of what's going on there. Um, The vowels were only added by the Masoretes, which was 8th, 9th, 10th century AD. So we're talking like almost a thousand years after Christ. And that was because um, it seemed as if Hebrew was dying. And so they were worried that if there aren't enough uh, Hebrew speakers, we're going to lose some of the meanings of these words and how to say these things. So they invented the the vowel part of the language of the written language. So for the most part, I'd say ninety nine point nine percent of the text between the Septuagint uh, and the Masoretic text, um, we've got we're on the money. But every now and again, for example, you go read the Book of Job, which is probably the oldest written book in the Bible. Uh, and you look at your footnotes at the bottom of your your page. You're just going to see time and time again the Hebrew meaning of this word is uncertain. The Hebrew mean the, the meaning of this Hebrew word is uncertain um, because you've got a couple of vowels and you've got a couple of sorry you've got a couple of consonants, and now you've got options that start to make sense. And um, again, we're talking like zero point zero one percent of of the Old Testaments, and scholars are going to start saying, well. Maybe it's viable that these are the other options. Um, And you've got to weigh it up. It's got to make sense. It's beyond just being interesting. Um, And when you get to those consonants in Genesis 3 concerning the snake, if you look at the two noun forms, depending on which vowels you supply, you either get the serpent or you get the deceiver. Now, let's just stick to those two. We're actually told very clearly later that he is the Hasatan which is another word for being the well, the opposer or the adversary. In the New Testament, he's called the deceiver. Um, so we're not just inventing things by saying, it seems very likely that the Hebrew authors had both in mind um, and then add the, the third potential form of this bronze concept, the shining being. Remember the seraphim were very likely lit up <laughs> as well um and and so it yeah, just uh, seems uh, very uh, likely it's a theory that works very well that the author had all three in mind as opposed to one versus the other
2: yeah because this the snake and the deceiver come quite naturally to us when we think of say, to, correct. but then he's also described as an angel of light and it, just that idea of shining brass is just like yes there's a whole there's a whole new layer like it just it's fascinating when it unfolds like this it's like it's, yeah 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 so, yeah, I, I, I think it was spot on, and and, and it's it's ex- exceptionally intriguing when we when we when we unravel this. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, Steve. So the snake came in kind of walking or high up, and some said the snake came in like that to the garden, and then it left on its belly. Like, mm. what does that mean in a literal? term and what does that mean metaphorically like how do we take value from this as a christian and yeah how do we look forward to that sort of question
0: steve you're getting it from all sides today nice chase Caesar's <laughs> <laughs> speechless there You've rendered him speechless <laughs> Look again. Um, hello he's probably watching good to have you
1: when, when i get to heaven one day and god says listen Stephen, i know you got excited about the seraphim thing but it was actually a boom and the Satan kind of possessed the snake. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, Balaam's donkey, there was something going on there. Like, it's possible, it's plausible. Um, I'm looking for explanatory power. I'm looking for evidence that um, lines up and... But if you take the former version and it actually just looked like it wasn't this seraphim being um, and it was just... Um, and and started speaking. Um, I do think there's some questions there, but but that's fine. And and I'll happily accept that because I think um, it's plausible from the scriptures. Um, Some have tried to argue that the original snake, that this is almost like a lesson in anatomy and that the original snakes would have looked almost more like lizards and have four legs. And as a result of the curse, Genesis chapter three, that they now crawl around as they do now. Um, And and they would actually, in fact, (laughs) um, evolutionists would argue a very similar thing. um, And that's uh, especially Parthons have these kind of like remnants, um, little bone structures that point to a similar kind of concept. So so they say, you see, now, obviously, they would want to talk about a different time scale and take evolution off the table. But they would say that that's proof of Genesis 3, uh, pre-fall, post-fall snakes. Uh, and again, um, there's something to that. It's not fictional. It's not just people coming up with that after eating too much pizza. Um, however... If, if we are going to run with this interpretation that Satan was most likely an angelic being, uh, a seraphim type being, and and we go with that language and he, that's how he appeared and Adam and Eve weren't you surprised by engaging just one of these heavenly beings, for a better term. Uh, so what does that mean? Um, I think there's still a lot to it. If you look at the book of Job, I've got the references here, but yeah, um, You know, if you want to ask in the comments later, I can put them down for you. But um, in the book of Job, in the book of Isaiah, the Hebrew word Sheol, which is is essentially the place of the dead or the underworld, um, are kind of like ways we can try to start thinking about it, um, is also described as the place of dust. Um, And then if you go to, and this is super obscure, so guys, go read these passages and look for these connotations yourself. But if you go to Isaiah 14, I mentioned these earlier, in Ezekiel chapter 28, there are these prophecies concerning the king of Tyre and his fall. And at first glance, it seems as if it's describing just this king who got full of his own pride and he wanted to be like God and God humbled him and there was this fall. But what theologians have been doing for literally thousands of years have been looking at the details saying, no, there seems to be another layer going on here. So once again, I'm not saying it's it's not the King of Tyre. I think it is the King of Tyre, a really literal king. But there are ways he's described in almost a metaphorical way. That's like, man, it's almost he's being compared to something else that's going on here. What is that something else? And so many theologians have concluded that what is being described, what he's being compared to is the fall of Satan, as described in Genesis chapter 3. And if you start lining the data up. Um, he, but Both passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, is described as being in the garden. And so you're like, was the king of Tyre ever in the garden? No. And that's why it's like we start getting curious. Why is this being described as being in the garden? And the only other being we know that it was in the garden was the serpent. Um, he's also described as being bedazzled with all these jewels, once again, going to this idea of being reflective, lots of light. Um, he's been described as being a cherub, which is another just angel word in Hebrew. Um, and so, again, just confirmation that he's some sort of angelic being. Um, and then he's described in these humiliation terms um, where he, uh, uh, in fact, the one verse talks about, um, so I just kind of looked at this. So Ezekiel 28 talks about him being cast to the ground and turned to ashes. And Isaiah 14 talks about him being sent to Sheol, the, the underworld, the place of the dead. And so, again, it just seems very possible that when the Satan is being told to go on his belly that it's it's about it's describing his humiliation think about a cobra I'm in attack mode Belly. I'm in retreat mode and so under just God's curse and God's sovereignty uh, he is in a humiliation mode he's in a curse mode he's in retreat mode and there's actually a banishment that he is going to be sent to Sheol uh, kind of the underworld the place of the dead um, and as we look at these parallel points between Genesis 3, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that just seems the most likely explanation. That um, it's less about, did the snake have a, a five-second evolutionary burst here um, and lose its limbs? Um, or, or is there really something more theological going on here? That the Satan was humiliated, his power was shown to be weaker, his future was predicted. You know, the messianic figure will crush his head and he is sent out of the heavenly court of God into the place of the dead. Um,
2: so, so do you think, Steve, like just just thinking of Satan and his kind of nature, like how we've come to know him, do you think that's why he's quite limited in in power? Like we don't see him really wandering as a snake talking to people that sort of thing like it ceased because he was humiliated and uh degraded do you think he's like that very thing has been stopped or how would you because like yeah that's what i like happening often and if it is and i hear someone i'm a bit skeptical of they said i met with satan or something do you think it's it's got to do with him He no longer has that kind of foothold or status
1: um i don't know if there's a yes or no answer to that um <laughs> and i'll tell you why We know that throughout, the, especially the New Testament, that Satan is alive and well, and he's very active, deceiving. I mean, he's described like a lion who's prowling around, seeking to destroy. Um, um, Jesus says, you know, I've come to give life, but the thief comes Mm. to take life. Um, And uh, James talks about, you know, if if you're, uh, I forget the exact context, but um, I think it's to do with your, your pride, Satan, And so the New Testament describes Satan in very active language. Mm -hmm. Um, What I think is going on here is that, I mean, I've been around 41 years. He's been around for (laughs) a very, 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 very long time. And he's an expert deceiver. He knows how to deceive and he knows how to oppose God's people. Um, Adam and Eve had this category of these creatures um, that I think they were familiar with, the cherubim and the seraphim. And and so he rebels and he didn't need to appear as anything else. He just appeared in his natural form and he deceived them by getting them to doubt God's word. Um, and I think if I had to come across a talking snake, I'm not going to get deceived. I'm going to run for a <laughs> mile. I'm going to have a long nap. Um, how am I going, going to get deceived? I'm going to get deceived by certain ideologies that appeal to certain sinful parts of my heart and my nature. Yeah. I'm going to get tempted by certain things of the flesh. Um, and so his tactic isn't going to be to talk to me in the garden. His tactic is going to be to um, in various forms and ways, get me to once again, doubt God's word um, to buy into certain ideologies that go against God's where God's mm-hmm. going with history and, um, and and yeah, so I think he's doing exactly the same thing, but in the way that's going to get me versus mm-hmm. um, what the context that Adam and Eve were in.
2: So then, uh, sorry, sorry this is just a follow-up. Now, you've had a lot then. of talking, bro. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but just nasty. Yeah. She's okay. been waiting the whole time, yeah. <laughs> okay, Steve, so then how was he humiliated and he downgraded? Because he still sounds exceptionally powerful. Like, in just how we've described it and how the New Testament speaking about it. Because if his head was stood on, like, there has to be a weakness and a, and a fundamental, like, shifting in his, his power or his status, or whatever it is.
1: Um, oh, my gosh. I don't know how to answer this question quickly. I see. Um, just, yeah, because it, it also, it ties into Next. also how one sees end times events <laughs> unfolding. All right. Which is its own, you know. That's there's good. about four four thousand rabbit mm-hmm. holes there that we can yes. really occupy as for the rest of our lives. Um, but there do seem to be some limits on what he can and cannot do. Um, the cross definitely seems to be the point at which uh, his defeat was made certain. Um, mm-hmm. And there is going to come a time at the end of history where he is going to be given permission by God to bring, it seems like, all the antichrists, human and spiritual forces against God's people. Um, and he's not doing that yet, and I can only assume it's because he hasn't been given permission yet. But at some point, there is going to be this ultimate showdown. Uh, and again, we are just guaranteed of the outcome, um, but it seems as if yeah, if Satan could choose to do it now, would he? I don't know. Um, I, I just know that God is kind of not permitting that, uh, but at some point he will permit that. But that idea of Satan gathering the, the all those beings that oppose God has been is a thread that runs throughout the whole Old and New mm-hmm. Testament.
2: And that'll be his end. That'll be his complete end. Once yeah, there. yeah. Just
0: we'll, we'll get into the end times at some stage if we wanting yeah. to go there, Jace. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'll have to yeah. block, out a, block out a couple of days to get through some of that stuff and those rabbit holes.
1: Yeah.
0: We did have a question come in, Sus. Oh no. Yeah, really.
3: Oh, I think Chris wanted to. See. Awesome. Daz, you throw it to me
0: good. then, Jase.
3: Let's go with you, no. Chris. What's your question Is then? Sorry, sorry, now Michaela's is on there, Mick. I'm sorry you about that. Anyone. No, I understand now that <laughs> sorry, man. I understand now there's this um there's a certain power and, and almost reverence. I, I say that word very cautiously that we have to give to to the Satan, to the enemy. But we know that he's not in a fixed place. You know, he's not chilling in the Amazon rainforest sending out boom slangs, as you said. Yeah. But now he, he's um <laughs> yeah, oh, Anaconda! Whatever he, he, he now at the same time is tempting you. He's tempting me. He's tempting someone in Brazil. And my question is, how is he um, allowed to transcend geographical regions, time, space? Uh, how? Yes, yeah, that's almost yeah. the character of God. And uh, yes, it sounds like he's still got some of his heavenly traits about him. That's a bit of a, t- a no. tough one to, to, to articulate to people who struggle with this Satan creature.
1: So I do think that he is, and I do think it's biblical, that he is finite, uh, and he's finite even geographically, even though he is a spiritual being, that he isn't everywhere. Uh, but just like we talk about World War II, World War I and Two, and we're like, oh, that's Hitler. Not every decision was made by Hitler. Hitler was working through his generals and his armies. Um, at the kind of the top of the totem pole, we recognize that he was the big chief that made it all kind of happen. Um, and so we attribute all those things to Hitler, but in, if you had to go through that with the fine-toothed comb, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that happened that he didn't even know, but it was kind of done in his name. Um, and so we do know from scripture that's both in the Old and the New Testament that there are, for example, the book of Daniel talks about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, uh, that were opposing God's angels um, and some battle happened between Daniel and the, uh, sorry, between this archangel and the Prince of Persia. Um, and, and in the new Testament, Paul talks about for our battles, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Um, and I, I don't have time to get into this, but most theologians are convinced that when Paul talks about principalities and powers, He's talking about kind of, uh, let's call them generals in Satan's army as opposed to his gophers and um, kind of... So there's like a a hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we've got various activities of the enemy. um, And yeah, as a result, it's all under Satan, but I might not have engaged the actual Satanic being. Uh, but it is all Satan. And then the final one is that uh, I think one of the biggest ways Satan has left his uh, fingerprints in our earth is is in what we call structures. And again, Paul even talks about Stokia. He talks about these structures. And um, I honestly believe that many of our worldly structures <laughs> at some point are actually demonically saturated now they're not all evil to go and make you. Again, it's not always about killing cats and spraying blood all over the wall. Um, but if we think about almost every earthly system, at some point it departs from where God wants to lead us. Uh, and so I still think, even though it's a it's a grid, it's a structure, that there is some there's enough poison in the structure to lead us astray if we let it. Um, even though structures are satanic. Um, so I'm not saying democracy, satanic, for example.
0: Oh, I was wondering.
1: <laughs> um, but I'm just saying, you know, you put enough poison in how it gets set up and how it works and how things happen behind the scenes. Even the structure can actually lead me away from God as, as opposed to to God. Um, and that's all I'm trying to say. So, and so filter all that back up and you get to Satan. Yeah, There sure. was a question from Michaela. Yeah, let yeah me put
2: um, it up. Michaela wrote in and she's saying, not sure if we've discussed it yet, uh, but uh, is it a, does it deter from your faith um, if we interpret the garden story as metaphorical and do we need
1: the literal sense? Um, look, if I was, for want of a better term, to play devil's advocate here, um I mean, so let's say you conclude, because I, I know, and I don't think I'm stepping out of line here, but I, I know that large portions of the Catholic Church, for example, teach that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are largely metaphorical. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even in some certain Protestant churches and progressive churches, they would teach the same. Um, I think there are a number of things that we lose, but let's just stick to, to this narrative. Um, let's say I gave you Genesis 3 as being metaphorical exclusively metaphorical, at some later time in the development of the scriptures, we get a non-metaphorical hasatan. And I'm wanting to figure out who is this person? What can I expect between him and God and me? uh, Who's going to win? Who's not going to win? And I, I want to find clarity on this. And so as I see clarity, I'm going to start going to the passages that deal with this being and I think by recognizing, rightly so, that uh, Genesis 3 is not metaphorical, uh, I just gain more clarity into who Satan is, what God's plan are, plans are for him, the fact that it was prophesied, that his head will be crushed, though he strikes this messianic figure's heel, um, and it, it just doesn't make sense if it's simply purely metaphor. Um, I, I do think that's there are very real terms used that have metaphorical implications, but I don't think that means they just metaphor. I think these symbols, just like the cross is a very real symbol, but it has powerful implications. I believe Genesis 3 saturated with very real historical realities that have powerful metaphorical or symbolic implications as well. And so as Christians, I think we've just got a duty to understand the Bible as well as possible. Uh, Will you not make it into heaven if you think that Genesis 3 is just a metaphor? I don't think your salvation rises and falls with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I do believe if we do want to deep dive these things, um, at some point we've got to make a decision. And personally, I think the responsible decision is to interpret it as uh, not being simply symbolic or metaphorical.
0: Michaela, I hope that helps. Guys, we've we've gone long here today. I know we're not finished yet. I've got I've got one more question, and then maybe Jace, because you've done the bulk of the talking. Uh, how is this going to change your relationship with Jesus as a young adult? But let me ask this other question: the angel of death. Uh, who is our actual? What is the the uh, our adversary actually trying to do and get us away from? If you know what I mean, what what is the actual warrior? Because if the angel of death is an angel sent from God and people die, uh, that's one thing. So there's death. Uh, But what is Satan trying to do to us and to the world if death isn't it?
1: Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, if, if he kills me today, I go to heaven. And I mean, we've had discussions around heaven, okay? To be honest, I think his... if, if, if
0: the angel if the angel of death kills you today, you go to heaven. No, it's, if, it's, if, you
1: die, if if you die, if I die today, even if Satan calls the guy to jump a red robot and uh, take me out while I'm shopping, you know, even if he's the ultimate cause, I'm okay. So you're right, death and and because Jesus rose from the dead, death is not the ultimate enemy. I can have faith that death will not be have the final say. In my life um the angel of death is is a very unique figure that shows up only a couple of times in the old testament and um it's it seems to be like again like you've got your army of generals and certain people have certain functions and so this particular angel had a particular judgment function Mm -hmm. uh, under god's sovereignty not satan's sovereignty um and so um but we don't really see much of that in the New Testament. So but what is Satan's ultimate plan? I, I would argue the single biggest word is to deceive me. Um, because that is true right from that Nachash Hebrew little bit of uh, intellectual gymnastics we can do there, right to the fact that Satan means he, he's an adversary to God Uh, right back, he's called the deceiver in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians describes him as one who blinds our minds Um, and so if he can just stop us from believing and seeing and trusting God, I think those are the things he's going to do, so which is why once again, his chief goal isn't to get me to slaughter cats and throw their blood all over the street Uh, his chief goal is to get me to trust anything anything even good things, more than Jesus and His Word and His truth, and so if I commit myself to being a good person, um, but in my heart of hearts I believe I'm so good, I don't need God. Satan's celebrating, yeah. yeah. And so I'm this great citizen of planet Earth, and Satan's going, yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think in the world we could quite easily think that death is is the enemy. The enemy's one. Because we've died and passed away from this earth, but it's more than that. Otherwise, the angel of death could easily be considered our biggest enemy and biggest adversary. But it's it's not that. It's it's more Correct. than that. So that's yeah. why I wanted to just bring in that angel of death. Yeah. Chase, as a yeah. young adult, how do you how do you live differently knowing this stuff?
2: Yeah, I think one, it's 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 very intriguing. I think just when you look at the Hebrew and get an idea of. What the seraphim is and the Satan is, and what his like mandate for us is like. At first, I said, "Like, well, it's great to be aware of this, like aware that there's an enemy that he really hates me, and he hates that I'm I'm made in yeah. the Father's image." But on the flip side, I I don't think it changes anything how I relate to Jesus. I think Jesus is still the same. Um, he's still the man I want to chase after. He's still who I want to become like. I still want to allow him to, to change me and work on my heart. And, um, naturally, if that's Jesus's mandate, I think Satan's mandates to, to come in the way of that. And so as a young adult aware of like, just the troubles that we have, the anxieties of life that young people face with. And, um, that at the end, it's not the be all and end all that God's still sovereign over our lives. And, um, Yeah, he has a plan for us so i think for me as a young adult just jumping onto board what god's plan is and what he wants from me
0: sounds good thanks jace thanks guys been a lucky afternoon chatting intriguing stuff and uh yeah a lot to chew on uh thanks for those who have watched and are watching Uh, if you find any value why don't you like and subscribe and send in questions if you have any because we want to tackle real life issues for Life and faith, and particularly in the young adult space. So uh, we hopefully will catch up with you next week. If not be blessed and see you guys soon. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Again, hope you've enjoyed the conversation. If you have any questions, feel free to send them to us. We'd love to chat there, chat about them. Do have a look at our YouTube channel. And if we've brought any value, do not you like and share? This with your friends and we can't wait to see you in our next episode see you then